welcome to uh, the final Corporate Council Forum of the year. Uh, thank you all for coming and joining us. Uh, today's session, as you're well aware because you signed up for it, is an update on legal issues and digital commerce. Um, as I say, this is the last of our um, sessions for 2011. Um, <coughs> we'll be back to you with the new CCF programme in early 2012, but before that, um, and by way of advertising, we have our third annual conference uh, in conjunction with PLC, a half day in the middle of town on the internet, halfway there but to where. Uh, the full programme is available on the website where you can also sign up, so do have a look, and if it's of interest, it would be great to see some or all of you there. So turning then to today's session, um, we are going to spend a little bit of time running through developments generally uh, in, in digital commerce and then specifically in the area of social media, which I think there's been an awful lot of buzz about in the past year. Um, for those I haven't met, I'm Callum Murray, I'm partner of the commercial team. I'll be taking the first part and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Rachel Boothroyd, who's here. Uh, who will be running through the social media issues. Um, Rachel, uh, Rachel offers quite a unique perspective on this, uh, given that she isn't content with having one role, she has two. Um, she's a consultant at Kemp Little, but also serves as general counsel to um, eModeration, who are a global social media management agency. Uh, I think in that role, she, she will hopefully be able to give us some insight that perhaps uh, we in private practice don't have. We'll then break for coffee and Rachel and I will run you through quickly some thoughts for your to-do list for 2012 coming out of the issues that we've identified in the various talks. So without further ado, thinking about the developments in the past year, um, this is, as everybody is aware, really quite a fast-moving area, both of law and of practice. There are many choices that we could have made and what we wanted to talk about, but what we thought we would do was um, pick up on a couple of issues that we discussed last year which are perhaps paused for slightly different reasons. Uh, move on to think about some areas where we haven't had any pause, where there's been change and change that's having a real impact on operations. And then look at uh, some changes to come, not quite with us yet, but again, really likely to have an impact on anyone who has a digital commerce operation. So moving then to the first of the, the issues, which I say has paused, but that's possibly an overstatement. Um, Net neutrality, now this, as everybody is well aware, is a really polarising issue. On the one hand, <coughs> one side of the debate, we have those who provide content or traffic to networks who are very keen that there's no discrimination on that um, traffic and that all users and all content are treated in exactly the same way. On the other side of the debate, we have the network operators who feel that they should be free to run their networks as they see fit, including, if necessary, by vary pricing structures for various types of content or users or data running through the network. This, as I say, has been quite a polarising debate over the past few years and I think it's fair to say that at an EU level uh, the Commission have come down pretty much on the side of the users. Um, this has been borne out by the changes in the telecoms reform package. Um, through the telecoms reform package uh, National regulatory authorities such as Ofcom in the UK have been empowered in three ways. Um, firstly, they're now allowed to set minimum levels um, for the quality of, of networks provided by ISPs. They're also entitled to put in place uh, measures to facilitate consumers switching between ISPs. And lastly, uh, they need to ensure that all ISPs um, provide transparent information in any traffic shaping. Um, that's taken place with consumers. Um, and the Commission have uh, 
taken this line very much with a view to ensuring that consumers have access to services in a level way. The, the, the Commission's position um, is now that through introducing these changes through the telecoms reform package, uh, uh, not consider specific obligations on uh, network providers to provide services in certain ways, uh, but rely on these measures um, through the telecoms reform package and see how those go. But that position um, favouring um, content and uh, users, as I say, has been brought in through the telecoms reform package, has, has been reflected in Ofcom's approach um, in a kind of meatloaf fashion. Um, Ofcom have taken two out of three of the powers that have been brought in through those changes uh, and implemented them uh, in, in their approach to regulation. We've seen changes made to the Communications Act and the Wireless Telegraphy Act in the UK, which allow Ofcom to to, to ensure that consumers here hopefully have a fair, uh, a fair approach to the networks that, that they're offered. Um, particularly, Ofcom has made changes in two ways. Um, they have ensured that there's a transparency of information from service providers to consumers. They've set out guidance on how this is done. They, they've also ensured that consumers can compare traffic management across networks. And, and made ease of switching one of the general conditions of license. And not uh, generally Ofcom's approach is, is that with these two measures in place, they think that the market will regulate detrimental practices. In other words, if users aren't happy with what they're being offered by networks, because they've got the information on what that is, and because there's an ability to switch, users will switch themselves, and that in turn will stop networks putting in place any access blocking or throttling or similar measures. So what we now know from Ofcom is that we're not going to see a minimum standard for service provision unless there's a real threat to innovation and services that are being provided. A second area where we've seen uh, movement this year but probably ended up in a pause is around the, the, net, uh, sorry, the Digital Economy Act. I think this screenshot or this photograph is destined to become a little bit like the private eye shot of the old gentleman standing next to the young lady. I don't know if anyone's aware of it. Andrew Neil, accompanied by an attractive young lady. Um, th this was the shot of the last debate on the Digital Economy Act uh, as it was about to be brought into law. It, you may think that it also coincided with the wash-up when um, all the turkeys were running back home to ensure that Christmas never happened just before the last election. Um, I think perhaps that sort of origin for the Act is reflected in the way it's been treated since. Um, one of the main provisions in the Act is around requiring ISPs to have uh, some rights and obligations to stop online copyright infringement, and that's been a specific issue for ISPs such as BT and TalkTalk. They've taken uh, grave concern at, at these requirements on them uh, and headed off to court effectively to suggest that, that the terms of the Act are contrary to a couple of directives, um, specifically the e-commerce directive and also the data protection directive. They were unlucky at first instance and a bit more successful at second instance, where the Court of Appeal agreed um, that they should be able to challenge what had been brought in in the Digital Economy Act. They're heading off for judicial review early next month. And what this means is that despite there being a great deal of noise about the Digital Economy Act and what it would do for Digital Britain, we're actually looking at a timeline that stretches into 2014, potentially. Um, the challenges that BT and TalkTalk are bringing are around the effect of directives on UK law. Um, the Court of Appeal is very likely to push those questions out to the European Court of Justice. They'll take 18 months to consider them. 
There'll then be another year when it comes back to us before we decide where we go. Consequently, the technical measures that are really necessary to give the meat to the DEA are unlikely to be seen by, uh, uh, sorry, till mid-2014. And this has been sort of supported by some recent commentary from Ofcom at uh, one of the Westminster e-forums, where the, their main policy person uh, aligned his timings, saying that we wouldn't be seeing anything on technical measures under the Act until that time. So what started out as supposedly the real backbone of Digital Britain is now becoming, um, to use David Cameron's phrase, something of a damp squib. So let's move away from things that are perhaps paused to things where we're actually seeing some activity. I don't think it's a, a narrowly held view that the changes that we've seen, again, through the telecoms reform package uh, around cookies have created something of a cookie monster for all of us who are trying to work in the, the online space. Um, there's a very small hidden change at the end of the, the list of changes that the telecoms reform package would bring in which effectively amended the e-privacy directive. Now, as I've got up on the screen, um, we're not to use data storing techniques such as cookies uh, and the like unless the user has given his or her consent, having been provided with clear and comprehensive information about the purposes of that processing. This is a 180 degree switch from where we were, as, a, as I'm sure some of you are aware. Previously, we, uh, we were able to use cookies by telling people that they were being used and they could opt out of them. Now there's only a very narrow exception to the requirement to have consent. That exception is around where the cookie is strictly necessary for something that the consumer has requested. So when we think about what's strictly necessary uh, in practice, I think if you're talking about services such as personalize my content or here is my password, those will be strictly necessary. But when you start getting to things like analytics that you're running through your site or testing that you're doing yourselves that's less likely to be when we get towards things such as i'm running targeted advertising using third-party cookies it becomes incredibly difficult to see how that's uh, possible to wedge into something that is strictly necessary for what the consumer has asked so then we fall back on having to have consent consent to the use of cookies and how we obtain that consent now there's a faint glimmer of hope in the recital to uh, the revising directive, and that's that users' consent could be expressed potentially through the settings of a browser. Now, this has been grabbed by the, uh, the advertising industries who are very keen on third-party cookies being made available. It's at the same time been battered by data protection regulators. The Article 29 Working Party, the European collective of uh, regulators, have said that they can't see how browser settings could possibly be a way that a consumer could give an informed consent. So where does that leave us in the UK? Well, the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations brought in the changes introduced by the, uh, the Telecoms Reform Package. And in introducing these, the government followed its stated line. Basically, it copied out what was in the Telecoms Reform Package. I think part of the reason for taking this approach on the government's part was that at the same time they were also being sued in Europe by the Commission for failing to introduce the last e-privacy directive fully. Um, in taking this line, however, the government have been quite open that they, they like the concept that was in Recital 66. They think that it makes sense that browsers can be a place where consent is captured. Um, the government's also been quite vocal in saying that they want to keep some flexibility, so they haven't gone near trying to define what is strictly necessary. 
And they've also given flexibility to the Information Commissioner who's been empowered to enforce these new regulations. The ICO in turn has given us some guidance uh, as to how it's going to take an approach. And I think, sort of paraphrasing a little bit, that the ICO's approach so far has been we're not very happy with the situation that we all find ourselves in, but that's where we are and we're going to have to consider it and sort it out. And in recognising this and the difficulties between the ICO and the DCMS, there's been a year's moratorium given, which will run out at the end of May next year. And in that time, we're all supposed to be thinking about what we can do to capture consent to cookie use. The Commission suggested a series of ways that that consent can be gathered, uh, whether it's through similar manners consents captured to terms of use of website, whether it's through pop-ups and acceptance there, um, whether it's at the time a requested feature is put forward on a website, but at each stage they're looking for some kind of active consent. I think it's kind of telling in making these suggestions that the Commission's probably, uh, the Commissioner's not wholly confident that where they've gotten to is a great place. The day the guidance was issued, the day the law came into force, this was the tweet from the, uh, the Information Commissioner basically saying, this is the best we can do so far, what else do you think? A uh, little bit worrying when a regulator is taking that approach. So where are we going with this? Well, as I mentioned, the, the government has reiterated that the kind of idea of browser settings is something that, that they're keen on. Um, they also recognise that at this stage perhaps browsers aren't quite as strong as you would want them to be. But it seems that there's a dialogue going on with um, the, the companies who produce most of the key browsers in the marketplace. And it's interesting, probably driven more from uh, the Federal Trade Commission in the States, but all of Google's Chrome browser, Microsoft's IE9, and Mozilla Firefox's next versions all have really enhanced permissionings to allow users to decide what they're doing um, in terms of cookie use. Those permissionings are still on an opt-out basis rather than an opt-in. Uh, but the fact that that's been raised up, the browser community agenda, leads you to wonder if somehow we can get to a solution that's driven from that direction rather from a website provider direction. And it would make sense that you ask six or seven organisations to think about consent and how it can be gathered rather than millions of website providers and how that can be done. At the same time, I don't think you could have moved around London in the past month without seeing Google and um, the Citizens Advice Bureau's really high-profile sort of information uh, campaign, Good to Know, is the branding of the campaign. Part of the Good to Know campaign has been about cookies, what cookies are, how they work, the hello, my name is David, wouldn't it be really annoying if you had to keep telling people your name every time you met them? Uh, and one wonders if behind this there's a closer collaboration between organisations such as Google and government that can get us towards a solution which isn't pop-up consent every time you want a cookie to be served on a website. Um, let's see. Another area in the past year where there's been real change has been uh, the regulation of advertising online. For a while the ASA has had control of paid-for advertising online, but in the past year they have moved to now controlling all marketing communications that are set out in non-paid-for space. And these are communications that are, as they've said, directly connected with the supply or transfer of goods, services and gifts. Now when we think about non-paid-for space, I think immediately we start to think about social networks and particularly the, the movement of enterprise to be involved with their communities more directly through social enterprise. This is something Rachel, uh, sorry, social media, this is something that Rachel will talk about more uh, later on. But as the 
we're now sort of nine months past the start of this. We're starting to see the ground settling a little bit and the ASA coming out to give some more guidance on what they're thinking about and what they're looking at. So they've given some non-prescriptive things to think about as to whether or not your content is likely to be regulated when it's in this non-paid-for space. I guess perhaps, obviously, um, they've said that if you use something that was an ad somewhere else in, in that kind of space, then it's very likely that that's going to be regulated as an ad in the non-paid-for space. Um, something else that they see is quite important is basically does the content have the characteristic of an, uh, an sorry, an invitation to treat. Um, and when you think about that, that's kind of effectively pushing out the, the benefits of your product or the qualities of your product. And certainly if it's got a price on it, it's likely to have that notion. Had some dis recent discussions with the ASA on this and, and it's been quite interesting. Uh, the, the examples that they played back were um, where you have content such as uh, feedback from your user group. Um, and you respond to that saying, thanks very much. That's not going to be something that will regulate. But if you answer specifically about a product and give product information, that will be something that they'll regulate. So it's kind of fine line as to where you're pushing products and where you're not. Free offers, the fact that it's free doesn't matter. If it's still got these characteristics, it will be regulated. And price displays, um, I find this quite strange. But effectively, the ASA are saying that where you display a price, uh, that will be treated as uh, an advert, regardless of whether it's just a price running through your purchase path. Um, I've had a long discussion with them about this for certain clients, but that's the line they're taking. In addition, um, the ASA have given some exclusions uh, for things that aren't caught here. Uh, I've listed them, so won't walk through them. Um, perhaps more interestingly is, is the grayer areas of how far the remit goes uh, in some of the interactions that you'd expect to uh, see through social media. Um, as I mentioned, customer reviews are unlikely to be regulated unless the brand takes those reviews and starts using them in their own marketing. There's an interesting question about simply linking from your own site to, uh, to a review site. Uh, when I've asked the ESA this, they came back possibly fairly and said, we don't know. Um, we'll think about it. Uh, on user-generated content, again, um, I think it's the characteristic of taking it and using it to support your brand that's likely to see this brought into the ASA's remit. Social networking pages, again, um, if you're pushing product, that kind of content is likely to be caught by the regulation. And on blogging and tweeting back to your user community, uh, uh, the, the, the notion of doing something more than simply having a conversation and actually pushing more than brand but product, again, is likely to be the tipping point. And we're seeing also the rise of paid-for blogs and tweets, and, and Rachel will talk about this more in the second half. So I think the key to note in all of this is that, as I say, probably fairly, the ASA are still finding their way through this at the moment. It's still a little bit of a brave new world for them as well. Okay, the third area where we've seen real change this year is around e-payment and what we can and can't do around e-money. Um, the change has been driven here from a real feeling at a European level that the first um, e-money directive wasn't actually encouraging anybody to set up as an e-money provider, which is a bit of a failure on its part. So they've now introduced the second e-money directive uh, and they're looking to enhance um, the prospects of e-money operations being set up. They're looking to widen basically those who are e-money providers. 
they've done this in a number of ways. They, they take banks and building societies out as separately regulated, um, but say that any other entity can now become involved as an e-money provider. They, they've also widened this to being a multifunctioning approach so that it needn't be the only thing you do. Previously, if you wanted to be an e-money provider, that had to be your business. Now you can do it as part of another business, which I guess is aimed at people like mobile companies um, starting to take on that role. They've also uh, now introduced a hierarchical regime where organisations with different rights and different responsibilities to, um, to be registered or authorised depending on how much of this business they're doing and the extent uh, to which it forms part of their main business, the extent to which they're, they're offering out monies. When we think about e-money generally, what are we thinking about? Um, basically, it's stored value, and it's stored value whether it's in an e-wallet, whether it's in a prepaid card, or whether it's kept in a server. Stored value that's then issued to make payment, I guess that's why it's called money, and accepted by third parties uh, other than the provider uh, itself. Things that aren't caught by e-money, um, Think where the, the, the payment itself can only be used in very narrow circumstances, either in terms of the place where the payment can be made or where the goods can be bought. Um, and when you think about that, we're thinking about oyster cards, petrol cards, canteen cards. Those kind of things fall outside the regime. Also, specifically for telecoms operators, um, where the operator uh, acts as more than an intermediary, uh, then that's likely to, to see the that scheme of payment fall outside the e-money regime. I think the takeaway point in all of the changes in the e-money regime this year is that if you're thinking about offering payment services to your customer base, you'll now have to wash yourself through the requirements here to see whether or not you do need to be authorized or registered with the FSA. So let's move forward then to what's coming. Um, three things I mentioned at the start. First of these is the Consumer Rights Directive. When I say it's coming, it's coming next week. There we go. Couldn't get more current than that. Um, effectively, this is going to have a real change uh, on for online operators when we think about um, making contracts at a distance, which is what we all do every day. Um, there are specific carve-outs from the regime here, and the regime aims to pull together three or four directives and cover uh, those in one place. Now, um, the carve-outs are specifically around financial services. Otherwise, if you're making contracts by remote means, you're likely to be caught by the new requirements. And the key new requirements, I've picked out a few. Um, the days of, uh, I won't mention um, overseas-based low-cost carrier airlines, but the days of pre-ticked boxes for optional items are now going to be gone. Uh, you can no longer do that. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, there's also a requirement to have full price transparency for customers. I'd have thought that was generally required, but it's good to see it written down. Um, more importantly, perhaps, uh, the enhanced withdrawal from contract rights. We've all got used to the seven business day regime under the distance selling directive at the moment. Uh, that's now stretching out to 14 days. Um, and interestingly, it's now 14 days from when the consumer receives the goods rather than when the contract's concluded as it was. And the kind of long stop and failing to let the consumers know about these rights now stretches out to a year, um, which starts to have a real effect, I think, on operational matters. Another place where perhaps margins going to be squeezed is um, payment mechanism costs are no longer to be grossed up, to use a euphemism, when passed on to the customer. Um, 
it's now a requirement that it's only the trader's costs in using that payment mechanism that should be passed on. I find it quite interesting that this has been phrased as costs rather than charges. Uh, I, I've got a sense that there might be some creative accounting deciding on exactly what it costs to use a certain payment mechanism in an online environment. But certainly this is intended to narrow the £5 processing fee that we see in, in lots of places. Refunds are generally meant to be done within 14 days now, um, and return costs are only to be borne by the customer if they have an understanding of what those are. And in effect, this pushes a real obligation onto the supplier to have an estimate of what return costs will be, which is a much more involved, I think, than sort of saying you will pay return costs. We've seen some standardization come in as well. Helpfully, there, there's some lists of information that you will be able to give to consumers to satisfy the obligations. And I guess on balance, helpfully, there's also going to be a model withdrawal form. So at least you know when consumers have pulled out of those contracts that that's what they're intending to do. Sounds like quite a lot of bad news for the service providers. Is there any good news? Um, there is. I think the key piece of good news is now that consumers are obliged to return goods within 14 days of cancelling the contract. This ties into the next point, which is there's no refund required from the, uh, from the trader until they've either received the goods or the consumer can show that they've been sent back. It's always been a bit of a gap in, in distance selling structures that the consumer can cancel and expect a refund, but the trader has always been waiting for return of goods. And a small point, but interestingly, you can no longer, uh, or you no longer have to refund the costs that the consumer has paid for delivery simply because they wanted the product urgently. If you've got a scale of, of offerings there as a service provider, you can cap your costs at the lowest that you offer. When are we going to see this in UK law? Well, as I say, if it's coming in next week, we've got two years. I think it's likely to be quicker than that. The government's been quite vocal in sort of pushing a wrap-up of all consumer rights, um, pulling together a number of different directives and, and local laws. So I, I think this is quite high up their, uh, their agenda. And having this Consumer Bill of Rights, I'd expect it sooner than, um, than December 2013. So last changes to come. The e-commerce directive changes. This is quite short and sweet. Um, when we wrote the agenda for this session, we uh, we were confident that, given that the co the commission's consultation closed in, in November 2010, we'd have something to say. We've gone through two deadlines and we're still waiting. Um, so when we have something more from the commission on what's happening with the e-commerce directive, we'll let you know. Perhaps. Most importantly of all of these changes, and you know it's important when it reaches the front page of the FT, um, in the next month or so we'll hear from the Commission as to what they're proposing to do with the Data Protection Directive. Um, I've set out there some of the, the, the lines that have been suggested in recent press as to what's going to be in there. Um, I think the biggest of all is, is the third where it looks like the Commission are going to ask for a system of mandatory personal data breach notifications, and this has been in the pipeline for a while. So where companies lose information, um, they are going to have to notify their local regulator immediately. They're talking about a 24-hour timeline. Uh, and following from that and other data protection breaches, a chance of fines which are, are done on much more competition law basis of um, global turnover rather than at the moment the maximum half millions. I think if this starts to happen, this is a real change in the profile of data protection regulation, sort of moves up from the legal team to the board level, I would have thought. Um, it's certainly where the Commission want to go. 
Whether this is them playing their high cards now to negotiate down over the next couple of years, I'm not sure. But if we get the changes that are outlined here, we're in for a real change in the, the effect of data protection law throughout online operations. So I'm going to pause there and I'll pass you over to Rachel, who will take us through some of the developments in the specific sphere of social media. Thank you, Karen. I thought we'd start by taking a look at the user experience of the World Wide Web, which is really a story of change. So if we look back, say, 10, 15 years ago, the user experience was very much dictated by the ISP. That was the question that you asked people. Who is your ISP? That was your trusted partner that would take you through the web. That's sort of changed in recent times. It's become all about search. So our partner, our user experience is dictated a lot by search. And Google, of course, has been uh, the big winner out of that over the past few years. And if Mark Zuckerberg is to be believed, then our new trusted partner for our user experience is our preferred social network, to his mind, Facebook. The future of the web is social. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but that's part of the change. So the beauty of user-generated content, now that's very much the sort of brand advertisers type of language. And they're getting very excited about user-generated content. This dialogue, direct dialogue between the user and the brand. So the user, the, communica the community can tell the brand how much they love them, can share photographs, can take part in competitions, um, and it's very levelling. You know, as an individual, we can post on a brand's Facebook page in exactly the same way the brand can post a message. But of course, the downside of that is that the users can also tell the brands what they don't like about what they're doing. Um, and we'll look at that uh, in part today. To give you a flavour of the type of volumes we're talking about with UGC, apparently there's 250 million photographs uploaded to Facebook every day and 230 million tweets every day. So in the next 20 minutes or so, I'm going to look at some of the legal developments in social media, look at the IAB guidelines on paid for promotion, as Callum mentioned, the defamation bill, a case on jurisdiction, and some of the action between Twitter and the courts that's taken place this year. And then borrowing really from my other role as general counsel of e-moderation, taking a look at some examples in the media of what can go wrong. Uh, what some brands have experienced in the social media space. So we'll start with the IAB guidelines that were issued last month. They're great if you've taken a look at them. They're very, very clear, um, which is extremely welcome after some of the previous guidelines that have been issued. I think inspired by the handpicked media OFT investigation, um, in case you're not familiar with that, um, handpicked media is an agency that went about acquiring sponsored or paid for content blogging. Um, the OFT took exception to this. The main issue was the lack of transparency. So these blogs were paid for, but there was no um, indication in the blogs themselves of that payment. And the OFT described it as precedent setting in terms of the action, and handpicked media gave undertakings saying that in future they would always reveal that the content was in fact paid for. In the introduction to the guidelines, they explain they think one in five online retailers is in fact non-compliant with consumer regulation. And the main regulations they were looking at was the consumer protection from unfair trading regulations. And that's harmonised law, comes from the directive, so we can rely on that as being pan-European. And the type of issues they are looking to address, I love the words here, um, astroturfing, 
So the idea that the fact we're looking at paid for content, thinking that it's not paid for, creates a kind of artificial environment. Callum explained to me of um, it's the grassroots, turning the grassroots into something artificial. And spamdexing, which is the deliberate artificial manipulation of search results. These are two particular regulations that they focused on for the guidelines. The first one is using editorial content in the media to promote a product where a trader has paid for the promotion without making it clear in the content in a way that's easily identifiable by the consumer. That's fairly easy to understand, but I think the critical bit that leads to this one in five non-compliance has been not relating to editorial <coughs> content in the media as social media. So tweets, retweets, got to be particularly careful about those. Anything on Facebook can be and is now deemed as editorial content in the media. The other regulation focused on was falsely claiming or creating the impression that a trader is not acting for the purposes relating to his trade, business, craft or profession or falsely representing oneself as a consumer. So it's probably bad news for the celebrities with huge Twitter followings, you know, the likes of Kim Kardashian talking about how fantastic Range Rovers and handbags are when she's been given free Range Rovers and handbags. There are three core guidelines. The first one is to disclose that a payment has been made, so absolutely vital, the transparency points. The second one is adherence to the terms of platforms and of search engines, really recognise the importance of search here. And the third one, ensuring that the marketing communication adheres to the CAP code. Well, that's okay, we kind of knew that we had to do that, but I think underlying that is the more important point, which is these, these communications, the social communications, are marketing communications for the purposes of the CAP code. And the really good thing about the guidelines was the practical examples that they gave. Instead of talking like the OFT did about you know, traders in market stalls selling pencils and things like that, they really did talk about blogging, tweeting, the type of media that are being used in social media. I put it into a table, as anyone knows me, they know I love a table. Um, so for blog posts, where must the disclosure be made? It must be actually in the body of the blog, so not in the terms and conditions, not hidden away at the bottom of the page somewhere. It has to be in the body of the blog. And this attribute no follow is a technical means by which the paid for content provider can comply with the search engine requirements. So by putting in this technical um, attribute, then it tells the search engine to disregard this content for the purpose of search. For video posts, where a video post is included within a blog, again, same as for a blog post within the body. If it's a video blog, so someone is paid to actually do the video itself, then the disclosure should be within the video that this is paid for. For Twitter, the use of hashtag ad which brings us into alignment with the US where they've had hashtag ad and hashtag spawn for paid for content for a while. For forum comments, the requirement is to follow the specified or agreed rules of conduct. Um, and if no guidelines are provided, then they've got to proactively ask if they're allowed to do that. And for Facebook, it's not permitted. It's a breach of uh, Facebook's terms. And, and there may be a few surprises in there. I think really this is the launch of hashtag ad in the UK. Uh, the Facebook terms, a lot of people were not aware of. There's been a few quite high profile um, bannings done by Facebook. Ad.ly was the most recent one in the UK. And Cadbury in India was also quite high profile. 
And the proactive requirement to go and ask a forum if it's okay for you to post paid for content on there uh, probably comes as a bit of a surprise. Although they're a bit on the borderline of whether they say that is actually a breach of the regulations or it's more protocol breach. And another surprise may be the requirement to comply with the search engine terms and use this attribute no follow. So moving on to the defamation bill. Probably everybody in the room here is familiar with the notice and takedown procedure. So ISP sites can protect themselves from potential liability where if somebody writes in complaints about potentially def defamatory material, then a defence is given by taking down the material. There's been a lot of controversy about this because it does restrict free speech. It removes the debate from the public arena. So these particular aspects of the defamation bill, the aim is to address that. And the distinction is being drawn between attributed comments where people are happy to put their name to it and anonymous comments. So if, if someone is happy to put their full name next to something, then it's more of a playing out of the disagreement in the public arena. So the complaint saying, actually, that's not true, I didn't do that, or whatever the defamatory um, issue is, can be published alongside, and then there can be an application to take down, or conversely, an application to leave up. For anonymous comments, it's pretty much the same as we've got now. So if there's an objection and someone doesn't want to put their name to it, then it is removed. Again, there's been a lot of debate about this, saying that really anonymous is not that someone really doesn't stand by what they're saying, but that it's a right within the web. Um, Mumsnet in particular have been very vociferous about this. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Jurisdiction issues. This was a case brought by Olivier Martinez, and the Daily Mirror ran an article saying that he was back with Kylie. Now, amazingly, he thought that was defamation. <coughs> and brought the case went all the way to the ECJ and it's of particular interest to all of us in the online space because jurisdiction is a big issue for us where is this stuff taking place because it's accessible everywhere so within Europe that brings us into article 5.3 of the Brussels Convention and the provision saying the place where the harmful event occurred or may occur the answer to that is so not obvious in the online space and particularly social media the ECJ were very clear about this. They gave the claimant two options. The first is the centre of the claimant's interest. So for Olivier Martinez, that would be France, where he did in fact bring the action. Or, secondly, the publisher's state of establishment, so in this case with the UK. And that is one forum, forum permitted for all the damage suffered. Additionally, an action could be brought in any state in the EU, but that would just be for the damage suffered in that particular state. So at least it gives us some kind of parameters about where we should be concerned about for forum. Now, by anybody's estimation, uh, this has been a juicy year for Twitter and the courts. And the big word is super injunction. I thought it might be nice to take a little look at what happened this year. In January this year, in the press, there started to be mention of super injunctions and the fact they existed. And this was picked up, importantly, by the foreign press and by Twitter. And there started to be all that speculation about who was it and what was it. That seemed to embolden um, the UK press and the Sun ran the stories but with no names. Then we had the Andrew Marr non-renewal confession and revelation. And then it turned into a a Twitter storm in May with a Twitter user exposing the celebrities and at its peak 
one in every 200 searches on Twitter was for super injunction to find out who it was. Now looking at the individual, one well, the key individual involved, he was advised in retrospect possibly not the best thing to do, um, to seek a disclosure order against Twitter. And his lawyers went for a Norwich Pharmacal order in the UK and then sought to enforce that against Twitter in California. Unfortunately, we didn't end up finding out the results of that. But one claimant who did succeed in getting a disclosure of individuals' details from Twitter was South Tyneside Council. There was a big disagreement, put it mildly, between councillors and somebody was being defamed on Twitter. The difference was they went for, through the California courts for a disclosure order and they did actually get the details of the user mainly because Twitter contacted the user and the individual involved said yes I don't mind saying to the world um, this defamatory information that I've got or negative information. So does that mean it's easy to get information from Twitter if you go to California? Not necessarily. Uh, the US government has been trying to get the WikiLeaks information from Twitter and has not succeeded. The critical difference here has been that the individuals have resisted. So Twitter will ask the individuals and if they say no then we're not sure whether they will reveal it or not. A big change that we've seen through social media has been the way that issues play out through the media, how they start, how they develop. Um, one very prominent, prominent example is this iconic shot now of uh, the aircraft landing on the Hudson River and this was uploaded as a tweet pic. So this news first broke on Twitter way before any journalists got there. Uh, staying with the theme of planes, Qantas had an issue through social media. A part of a plane was found, not a good sign, and rumours started on Twitter that there had been a crash. They hadn't, in fact, but it went viral. They did many things right, but what they didn't do is have a very coordinated response. So they did have a presence on Twitter and there were almost immediate demands for has there been a crash, has there not been a crash. Their response, and this was repeated in many blogs, was not particularly coordinated and possibly not quick enough to, have, to prevent the share price impact that did in fact happen for a crash that had never happened. Which perhaps is why the New York Times social media editor described social media as being like a puppy. You have to be prepared to commit. So if you've got a, a Twitter uh, user account out there and something happens to your brand, then there will be an expectation that there will be a rapid response. Now there's lots of talk about social media crises, so what do they look like? I'll take a few examples. This is one that happened to DKNY um, and it really illustrates how coordinated this could be. Um, this is from the anti-fur organisation PETA, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, and they organised coordinated posts on the Facebook page to spell the offensive message down the side. Uh, DKNY's response was to disable the page and that seemed to have the impact of inflaming the situation because by disabling the page people were still allowed to comment on the previous comments that had happened and there started to be um, even more vociferous complaints. Possibly not the best way to deal with it, and it which is why social media has often been described as a hydra. You try and cut off one head it grows three more. Very hard to silence. Uh, Versace also had an issue um, debate about 
controversial technique of sandblasting their jeans. Again, what they did was just delete the comments, and this did inflame the situation. You've got someone specifically saying, you know, instead of trying to communicate and engage, you choose to delete, not learn from other brands, blah, blah, blah. So very difficult to manage. So is it better just not to be in the space at all? Uh, Paper Chase had an issue. There were accusations of plagiarism for an artist called Hidden Elwars, I think. Um, and this was trending on top on Twitter. It became one of the most talked about subjects. Um, and Paper Chase sort of had to gather a hasty response and they had to put debate on their website, but they were not in this space to be able to um, put their point of view forward and engage. Finally, an example of it being done well. Well, this is a, a rogue tweeting example, um, probably better called as somebody in charge of a password and a mobile device whilst drunk. So somebody for the American Red Cross decided to tell the world when they'd had uh, quite a lot of dogfish heads Midas touch beer. Red Cross did it really well, very rapid response, appropriately humorous. Um, saying, you know, we've deleted the road tweet and uh, we assure you that we're sober and we've confiscated the keys. Managed very well and in fact the beer brand in question exhorted all their fans to donate to the Red Cross and donations went up as a direct result. So there's a positive of how it can be done well. Thanks everyone. Let's crack on for a quick 15 minutes and then let you get back to the day job. Um, we wanted to a quick think about, I guess, some things for you to consider, maybe stick in the to-do list if they're not there already uh, for, for next year. Um, this has really come from, I think, what conversations we're having, uh, you know, not quite on a daily basis, but certainly regularly at the moment, as people start to address what they're going to do with some of the issues that we've identified in the first half. Um, picking up on the first one, and the, I guess this cookie monster issue, it's already been sort of widely touted by the Commissioner that although they're not doing anything until May of this year, they do expect people to be having a think about what they're doing with cookies, um, you know, having a plan and not fighting fire. They, they've come out with notions of audits, um, you know, thinking about the impact on users uh, and, you know, perhaps how you're going to get consents to the cookie use that, that you're, you're doing. And we're definitely seeing this in practice. Um, People are now undertaking these types of audits and, and I think being quite surprised at the results that there's actually an awful lot of cookie use going on in their website that they don't need. Um, and that's a great place to start from. If you can clear out a load of rubbish, then you're really narrowing it down to what you know you do or uh, you do need to be keeping. Uh, what's interesting, and I haven't written it down here because of course we'd never suggest that people shouldn't comply with the law, is that as part of that audit we're seeing a lot of people considering which cookies do they make money from. Um, What's a revenue stream? And can I somehow build up an argument to justify keeping it? And if I can't, am I going to keep it anyway? Because what's the level of fine going to be? Um, that's one view to taking an audit and deciding whether or not you want to do these things. As I say, uh, that, that's not advice from us. Um, a, a, another view, uh, and I think possibly a little bit closer to um, to being legal is thinking about what's actually strictly necessary and you know can you create arguments to support that um, for example if you're some kind of comparison website um, people come to your site to get responses um, to the questions of you know tell me the prices for various gas suppliers um, if you have to cookie 
to go through to providing all those answers from different gas suppliers, then you know, is that strictly necessary to what they've asked for? I think there's a really good argument that yes, it is. And what we're spending quite a bit of time at the moment with several clients is working through you know, what are your services and therefore can you justify that things are strictly necessary to those services? These are the kind of arguments I think that should your door be knocked upon by the regulator that it's really helpful to have pre-prepared. On the consent collection mechanisms, um, what we, we've trotted through a couple of the ideas that the Commission set out um, earlier on. Uh, uh, there is no clear answer here, there is no silver bullet. Uh, I think where we're seeing a tendency is towards something that's a little bit like the consent to uh, terms of use and consent to privacy policy that you may have on sites already. Some kind of action-based, needn't be a tick box, but you know, if using this site you realize you're doing so in accordance with these terms, and adding in where you have maybe terms and privacy policies, something that says, and cookies, and cookies would link through to a page that explains what you're doing with cookies, at least building some kind of argument that if you're challenged by a regulator that you have tried to get the consent and you've tried to make that informed consent. Um, that, that's probably the, a, a simple approach. Um, whether it's going to be sufficient, you know, none of us know. Let's wait and see. But I think thinking along those lines is something that's perhaps more readily uh, doable and, and equally importantly, less sort of um, infringing on user experience there's no way we want to get to a place where it's um, pop-ups every time you try and open a new functionality or each new functionality, show me the video being, do you accept the cookie to watch the video? Uh, just, just no. Um, this is obviously a conversation in the business uh, that shouldn't just be for legal, um, unless you're a very well-informed legal team. You want your technology guys in as well, helping you with what's going on. And as I've mentioned, you know, if you want to, you might be having your finance team in as well, telling you where the revenues come from. Um, I think the, the point that's quite often forgotten in this is that most organisations are service providers, but also service users, particularly around a lot of the um, advertising that you might be receiving. So you might want to be flipping this round and talking to your advertising providers and asking them, what are they doing? What consents are they getting? How are they getting comfortable on um, cookies that they're pushing out? And what comforts contractually can they give you? I think the last point, as you kind of run through all of this, is um, you know documenting it and retaining it. Um, if you have, I think, um, shown that you have made efforts to be compliant um, and can capture those efforts and display them to a regulator, you are so much further on than trying to answer the regulator's questions when the knock on the door happens. You know, it's for you to decide how much of the retention around things like the financial thing you do, but you know, really capturing these things will lessen the impact of any regulatory questioning. So one of the key messages from me for preparing for a social media crisis is to do it before it actually happens. So it's prepare, prepare, prepare. And part of that is to get the team in place and to make sure that legal is in fact in that team because a lot of this can happen completely outside of the legal department and some of the conversations I was having in the break were very relevant to that. So a few recommendations, ensure that legal is involved, um, use of tools, there's many software tools out there, obviously there's, there's human moderation as well so that you can actually, the brands can capture what's happening before you get the DKNY type of situation. Um, an escalation procedure, a plan for crisis, again, including legal. 
terms of and conditions of use and access to keep those updated, uh, particularly dealing with you know, the paid for content aspect. And media agencies, if you're working with media agencies, some of them might not be 100% compliant. Um, so, so make sure that those type of issues are flushed out in the terms that that's um, brought into the conversation at the time of engagement and that they are involved as they need to be if a crisis does in fact happen. So it looks a bit dinosaur, but it comes, one of the key aspects is the policy. Now I know probably all of you have a social media policy. And again, some of the conversations in the break were very relevant because they can be a little bit lost. And this is an area where people feel this is my free time. This is my personal Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter account. I can do what I like. Um, and there have been many examples, mainly played out in the employment law aspect, of people saying what they think about their employer, their brand, confidentiality issues, saying who they've been meeting, what the meeting was like. It is not a personal conversation. There's many, many people who are you know, just sort of not up to speed with that. Some of the aspects to bring out in the social media policy are transparency, the importance of um, being clear about who you are, the fact that you are representing your employer. If you say who employs you, if you join <coughs> alumni groups, then people will know who you're from. They do a search on a brand and that individual as being employed by that brand will come up. The responsibility and respect are two key aspects that need to be brought out. And again, this is not really what we're used to as lawyers. We're used to being a little bit more prescriptive, but the very nature of social media means there's an aspect of trust because it is partly people's private life, but it's also their work life. The confidentiality point is very important. Political views may or may not be appropriate depending on who you work for. Tying in with the acceptable use policy, again, there have been some um, employment issues around that, but if there's a social media policy, people think, well, that means I can spend all day on Twitter and Facebook because I'm doing it for my work, aren't I? Um, so an explicit link between the acceptable use policy is a good idea. A suggestion to consider the audience, um, a requirement to use good judgment. Again, this is all trust type issues rather than being very, very prescriptive. And taking a leaf out of the, um, the advertising guidelines is to address the blind spots. There's lots of things that we may do that we're not aware do actually bring us within regulation or do bring us in breach of the policy. So taking some real examples of, say, retweeting issues with prize, giving some examples of what could actually go wrong would be very useful. And that's both to address the, the risk, to minimise the risk of it happening, and to give the, the required employment remedies if something actually does go wrong. There are great resources online, as well as obviously through law firms. Um, social media governance has some great um, a list of social media policies to take a look at. And the overall message is it's a question of balance. You know, it really brings into the fore the work-life balance with people using social media. You know, you've got to be very careful to strike the right balance, but if you do, great things are possible.